Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances... And one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first, the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. And then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover, Sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress' eyebrow. Then a soldier full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice in fair round belly with good Capen lined with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank and his big manly voice turning again towards childish treble pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, Sans taste, sans everything. Hi, and welcome back to The Plays the Thing, 
That was Dan Pagoda of Eugene, Oregon, performing the famous All the World the Stage speech by Jacques in Act Two of As You Like It. I am Tim McIntosh, and I am joined, hello Heidi, by Heidi White. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Tim. Good to be here. Good to see you. I'm nice excited. To see you. Me too. This is um, As You Like It, one of Shakespeare's most beloved comedies, probably up there with A Midsummer Night's Dream and Much Ado About Nothing. And as I understand it, it's one of David Kern's favorite Shakespeare plays. He yep, told us that when we were recording um, earlier this week. And so we're going to try to bring David on for one of the later episodes. But for now, we are going to jump into Act One of As You Like It. Um, Heidi, have you ever seen a production of As You Like It? I have, yes. I've seen um, a production at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival a few years ago, and it was great. But that's the only one. I've only ever seen one. Any, have you ever seen any um, movies of As You Like It? No. Okay. No, I have not. What about you? I have, and I'm going to recommend one. Um, I'm going to recommend one, and it's a lukewarm recommendation. So the BBC in the 1980s did the entire canon of Shakespeare's plays. And As You Like It, of course, was one of them. And I, I love their productions. You know, the, the, the quality is from the 1980s. And it's not, you know, it's not in HD. However, they have some of the absolute, like, world's best actors. And, you know, people will remember most of these names because they have gone on to kind of, like, do big screen roles in Hollywood. Ian McKellen is probably best known. Um, but in this one, Rosalind is played by Helen Mirren. And oh, yeah, she's really in the eighties. Yeah, in the eighties, she's sense. really good. And th- that's worth mentioning because the last podcast that we did, The Tempest, Helen Mirren ended up playing Prospero in one of the productions that I talked about. So that's a little segue. Um, Heidi, there's lots of similarities between As You Like It and The Tempest. As You Like It, The Tempest is thought of as very, very late for Shakespeare. Maybe even his last play. As You Like It, though, is probably right in the middle. So Shakespeare wrote, we think, 37-ish plays. There are a couple that he seems to have like kind of dual authorship of. And As You Like It occurs right before he turns toward his great tragedies, Hamlet, Othello, Macbeth. So this is right before he begins to kind of kind of go dark. The year, for as you like it, is <laughs> estimated around 1600. So that's kind of an easy right. one to remember, 1600. Um, despite the difference in time between The Tempest and As You Like It, We've seen some similarities between The Tempest and As You Like It, yeah? Oh, yes, absolutely. And when we recorded The Tempest, we talked about how it is one of the only plays, the only play that we know of that Shakespeare actually made up the story. We can't find a source for it. So it was all his idea. And he seemed to then kind of 
throw all of his main themes into the Tempest, things right. that he explored in other plays. Uh, and As You Like It has a lot in It's a more, I would say it's a much more lighthearted play than The Tempest. And it has some different kind of underlying universal contemplations to it. But the idea of uh, the the green world, the the disconnection between the city and the pastoral or natural life, um, the division between lovers, uh, the relationship between fathers and sons and brother and brother and the disconnect there, the theme of civil war. There's a lot of things that are the wise fool. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that are similar about the plays. One of the things that I'd like to talk about is I'd like to hear you talk more about the green world and maybe you can tell us kind of how the green world appeared in the tempest and how it shows up in the Arden forest as you like it. But I'm going to pause briefly and just give a little overview of the opening of this play. So beginning of the play, a father has died. Sir Roland de Bois has died and his estate has passed to his older son, which would be the tradition. His older son is Oliver. And we find out very quickly that Oliver is, he's just no good. He's no good because he has withheld kind of like his father's estate, his money from his younger brother, Orlando. And apparently he does it for no good reason other than spite. He just doesn't like Orlando at all. So Orlando has not received the kind of money, the kind of education and the property that he wants to become a gentleman. And so he's kind of, it seems like he's just kind of being treated by Oliver, his older brother, as a day laborer. So there's a confrontation early on in the play between Orlando and Oliver. Orlando wants the money so he can become a gentleman. Um, Oliver refuses. And then behind the scenes, Oliver goes to Charles the Wrestler, who is kind of like coming through town. It's a little bit, I guess, maybe like the circus is coming through town. And Charles the Wrestler is coming to town. And Oliver says, boy, Charles, I would love it if something happened to my brother in the ring. Charles doesn't want to do this because that would be, I mean, a terrible mistake to injure a gentleman. But Oliver's like, don't worry about that. Um, Orlando is a really bad guy. He'll sucker punch you. He'll do anything he can to win. Um, so take him down. Now we cut to the wrestling scene, which is kind of funny, Heidi. I'm actually going to pause here and ask you a question. Did you imagine the wrestling scene as a serious affair or did you imagine it a little bit more as a farce? Oh, what a good question. Um, I guess I, it takes such a turn <laughs> that at first I thought of it as more lighthearted and funny and, and expected it to be that. I'm trying to even think about the first time I encountered yeah. this scene, but it takes a dark turn. So I guess in my imagination now, I think of it as serious. Yeah. What about you? Well, the first time when I, I think the same as you, when I led into the wrestling scene, it was such an uneven match. Everyone knows Charles is just going to, you know, 
do away with Orlando. There's, there's references to how small Orlando is. He's clearly outmatched. And so it can be read as a farce. Charles is just going to kind of have some fun with him. But then Charles dies. Orlando right. like throws him and Charles the wrestler dies. Um, and then, yeah, you can't really play that as a farce. Or if you did begin it as a farce and then it's, you know, Charles the wrestler is killed. Boy, that's a, that's a real grind of the gears for an audience. So I think you kind of have to play it. I think you have to play it like it's a real wrestling match, I suppose. Right. So there's this movie. It always, when I was reading it this time, (laughs) there's this movie called Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which I personally think is one of the greatest animated features of the age. (laughs) (laughs) Just that title is, that title is fantastic. So great. And um, there's this scene in it when, this the main character who's been like raised by his father and he's a very serious kind of like nerdy person and he's never been in a snowball fight and um so there's this storm and it snows ice cream and so the whole town is covered with ice cream and there are all the kids in the town are having a snowball fight and he goes out and but he's never been in one before so he says how do i do this is it to the death <laughs> <laughs> And it's like super funny. And I thought of that yeah, scene. Yeah, I can see why. And that it does take this turn. Like they're just, but but it it does show us, and I want you to get on with your summary, but it does show us how desperate this young man mm-hmm. Orlando is and how like in his poverty and the, um, the disconnect between the man that he should be as a member of the nobility and the life that's been denied to him and, and, and how how desperate he is. Yeah. in this scene to take what should be a lighthearted court, you know, entertainment. And it is to the death. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I was talking with a friend of mine. Um, this is a friend of mine who she is in New York and she is about to put on a Shakespeare play. She's the producer. And she and I were talking because she saw a production of The Winter's Tale that I was in. And we were talking about how hard it is to convey certain things in Shakespeare. Shakespeare is so universal and he's so, across cultures, I think he's easy to understand despite the language difference. Like once you get into kind of like the rhythm of his beautiful language, you can understand him. But there's a, there are a couple of things about Shakespeare that if you're not from the 1600s world that he inhabited, they're difficult things to convey. And one of them, I think, is the thing that we're talking about, about Orlando. What it would feel like to be deprived of one's status in society. Right. Because I think especially as Americans... This is very difficult. I think for British, it'd be a little bit easier because there is this sense that gentlemen are kind of born gentlemen and and ladies are born ladies. But I think in the United States, there's this strong sense of, well, nobody's really born into anything. Even if you have money, well, you still got to work to keep it. You know, there's this sense that like, you've got to earn everything. So... I think for American audiences, trying to understand how 
what the deprivation that Orlando is experiencing, it's not the easiest thing to understand. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. And I actually have a lot to say about this with this play, but let's yeah. let's make it through the summary. Orlando I don't want to derail it. <laughs> Orlando has defeated Charles, but while he's in the ring, he and actually just beforehand, he meets these two cousins. He meets Rosalind and Celia. And so Rosalind and Celia are almost the mirror of Orlando and Oliver. Celia and Rosalind, they adore each other. They're faithful to each other. They're playful. And they're kind of like in the care of this Duke because Rosalind's father has been kicked out. He's been exiled. And we know that he's been exiled to the Forest of Arden. So shortly after the wrestling match, Rosalind and Celia too are kicked out. Actually, Rosalind's kicked out and Celia is so faithful to her friend cousin that she joins her in exile. And next thing we know, Celia and Rosalind are on their way to the Forest of Arden. And we find out shortly after that, that Orlando and Adam, his servant, are also on their way to the Forest of Arden. So we know there's going to be a meeting. We know that Rosalind and... um. Orlando have got this little spark of romance happening between them. And we know that whatever is going to happen is going to happen in the Forest of Arden, which, Heidi, is like the island in The Tempest. It's this green world that Shakespeare is so frequent to use in his plays. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what does he do with these green worlds? Why, why are, are there kind of certain characteristics that are common in the green worlds of these various plays? Yes, it's a really good question. And I find this aspect of Shakespeare's works to be completely fascinating. There are several plays in which this green world exists, this kind of idyllic, pastoral, natural world. Usually it's a forest in Shakespeare. Uh, in The Tempest, it's an island, but it's still a island with lots of trees, and that's that's part of its nature. Uh, so this, this tradition goes back long before Shakespeare, and he adopts it for his own purposes and makes it, you know, more magical. Um, but the tradition goes all the way back to the Greeks, believe it or not. Um, there were many Greek and Roman poets who, who used what, what we now call the pastoral tradition to explore different contemplations that had to do with a growing urban life. Uh, so back in, in the Greek time, there were many, many poets who wrote plays or poetry um, about mostly shepherds, actually, who live out in, in nature and then fall in love and uh, create kind of this, this world of simplicity and love. Um, out in the natural world, and that was called the pastoral tradition. Uh, and Shakespeare adopts that, and he, interestingly enough, makes almost all of his green worlds magical, with a couple of exceptions. Um, so Midsummer Night's Dream, As You Like It, The Tempest, these plays have magical creatures that and an escape from the complications and injustices of urban life, the overcrowding, uh, the competitions. Uh, here we have civil war between brothers or ex- 
maybe not civil war, but we have one brother usurping another uh, and in multiple cases with Orlando and with Oliver and then with Duke Ferdinand usurping his brother. And we see all of that in act one. And so the characters then who actually want justice and are longing for human connection, they have to leave the urban world and go into the natural world where these complications are going to get heightened and then resolved. Uh, and again, we saw that in The Tempest and we saw that in Midsummer Night's Dream. And here in As You Like It, um, we see it. This is probably, you know, many consider this Shakespeare's greatest comedy and especially of his high comedies um, during this time period that, that we've been talking about Um I, I kind of go back and forth between this one and Twelfth Night, um, but this one particularly has just a lot of depth to the idea of escaping into the forest. Um, this would have called upon a couple of different really interesting threads from the literary tradition. In fact, this is, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm talking too much, but I'm really interested in this. <laughs> this is great. This is great. <laughs> um, in the folio and the quarto editions of Shakespeare, he has two different spellings for the Forest of Arden. Uh, I think it's the folio that has A-R-D-E-N, which is the one that's come down through the, through the tradition. Yeah. That's an anglicized version of the original, which was the Forest of Arden, A-R-D-E-N-N-E, which is a French spelling. Oh, Interesting. And Shakespeare's source for this play is actually a French prose romance uh, called Rosalind, but it's spelled in the French way. And it has a very similar story, but Shakespeare, as he is wont to do, took it and changed it a bit and emphasized different characters than it was originally in the French prose romance. But in the prose romance, it was Arden, the Forest of Arden, A-R-D-E-N-N-E. And Shakespeare used that in his original authorship. And that's interesting because there's this whole French romantic tradition that has to do with the uh, with the Arthurian legend that had, you know, knights and ladies that took themselves very seriously. And there's a lot of chivalry and there's battles, uh, just like you would imagine with, with the Arthurian tradition. And that's where he got the idea. And then he changed it and made it this like romping, rollicking comedy and changed in later versions, changed Arden to Arden, which then would have evoked images of Robin Hood, which is very English tradition. And as you, I'm sure our, I don't know if our readers noticed this, but Oliver and Orlando's father is Sir Raymond Dubois, which is a French name. Mm. Um, or Dubois. So, so there's this kind of weaving together of the romantic tradition of the continent and also the, you know, the Robin Hood tradition of, of England and of England and the, um, but they had two very different kind of emotional weight to it, to its audience. The Elizabethan audience would have probably connected to one or the other. And so in making it Arden, A-R-D-E-N, he changes emphasis from the French Romantic tradition to kind of the more um, relatable English one. And so, so let me say this back to you to see if I understand, Heidi. If, if the English audience kind of hears the allusion to Robin Hood, then they are going to think that the Forest of Arden is um, kind of a place where wrongs are made right. And if they hear the kind of an allusion to 
the French romantic tradition, they're going to hear, what would they hear instead? Uh, more of the chivalric Arthurian uh-huh. feel. Uh-huh. And it would be literally more distancing to them. Yeah. It would, well, there is an actual forest of Arden in England. Um, and there is an actual forest of Arden in France, but they're different. Um, And so geographically, as well as having kind of a different weight to it. And it seems as though Shakespeare decided to go the more Anglicized version, Mm -hmm. and that's the one that's enduring to this day. Um, But the, if I were teaching this play, I would talk a lot about the difference between the forest and the, the, the city. Um, and what are the characteristics of the green world versus the characteristics of the city? And in this particular play, we're talking about exile. These characters that end up in the forest beginning in Act 2, and we see the problems in Act 1, that's when the trouble is brewing, Yeah. Uh, what, we've, what we're talking about this week. These characters are fleeing to the green world in order to build a new life very much like Robin Hood, as you said, to right the wrongs um, of primogenitor, of the oldest son having control, whereas a younger, more worthy son doesn't get access to it mm-hmm. because the laws are flawed. Um, and so, and there's no one to advocate for the wronged younger generation. Right. Which, and this is the last thing I'm going to say before I before I ask you another talking. question. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, is that. Another characteristic of Greek comedy, which is what Shakespeare is drawing upon, particularly in this play and kind of transfiguring it for his generation, is this idea of the younger generation being wronged by fathers in the or older men in the old generation. And we see this play out um, with the Dukes. Um, which is another similarity to the Tempest. When you have a, one a younger brother Duke usurping his older brother um, with Duke Ferdinand here, and then banishing his own niece, whom he loves, and his own beloved daughter, in order mm-hmm. to hold on to power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another characteristic of, of Greek comedy, uh, that there's this younger generation, all they want to do is love each other and connect and be a part of a simpler time. And then these big bad father figures are, you know, the obstacle. So is, would you say that, um, is As You Like It the first okay boomer play? <laughs> I'm glad you. I'm glad you got that because I was like, I, I did not know what OK Boomer was until very recently. Well, that's because we're Gen X. I know. Yeah, 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 so. yeah. And we, that's right. We're too jaded. Um, we're like, whatever. Nirvana was the best. I'm just going to drink a martini in the corner. Right. <laughs> so OK Boomer, I feel like we need to do a little, like a little close read on OK Boomer. Um, it it kind of hit the airwaves. There was a young woman age like 25 who was elected to the New Zealand Senate, uh, New Zealand Parliament. And she was making a speech about climate change. And she was heckled by this older man also in the parliament. And kind of without missing a beat, she inserts into her speech, okay, boomer, which is this very dismissive way of saying, we get it, 
you don't care. That's part of the reason I have to keep making this speech is because the boomers are just kind of like overlooking this massive cause to Generation Z, to millennials. So when you're describing what's happening to Orlando and also to Rosalind and maybe Celia, it does really sound like, okay, boomer. It does. It it kind of sounds like that. It really does. That's hilarious. Yeah. I think that that's accurate, that there's, that that Shakespeare often within his plays, uh, the obstacle to young love is the older generation and, and not only embodied in the individuals, but a, a condemnation, a rejection of the injustices that are perceived by the younger generation as being represented in the older generation. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just personal, it's societal. Um, And in the comedies, it's kind of funny because they, it's not, Shakespeare's not writing a morality tale. He's not, you know, writing some kind of fable in which we're supposed to learn a great lesson. He's just writing a comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, But embedded within it are these other universal contemplations like, it's not really fair that Oliver has access to all of these riches right. and, and, and primogenitor is one of the contemplations of this play. Uh, is this okay? Is this okay that this is happening? But Shakespeare again provides a counterpoint because it's the younger Duke Ferdinand that overthrows his older brother who's rightfully mm-hmm. the Duke um, and should be in charge. And so what Shakespeare does is he doesn't just condemn one group. Uh, he always provides a counterpoint. So you're focused on the humanity and the justice, not just, you know, some kind of fake morality tale. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, Shakespeare, as we talked about before, He's so he's so slippery. He is expert at using existing kind of cultural traditions and capitalizing on them. But I, I what you said I think is really important, Heidi. That it's he's not. This is a comedy. Mm-hmm. It's not a morality play, right? And um, he capitalizes on the injustice of having the primogenitor. Um, basically squelch the younger brother and not fulfill his duty as requested by his deceased father. Mm-hmm. Um, can you say a little bit more, that word primogenitor might be a little bit foreign sounding to some of our listeners. What do you mean by that? Right. I mean, we all know what it is. We might just not know what it's called. It's the Western tradition of passing down the inheritance to the oldest son. Not something that's typically practiced today. I mean, I think it probably is, there's probably still some leftovers. Sure, like in the royal family in England, right? Right. Everybody knows that the oldest prince is going to inherit the throne. And and that the boy, that the male line will get it over the female line. Um, But as you say, it's not, it's no longer positions of power. Right. Um, right. Of political power or access to wealth, the way it was then, uh, but then it was a really big deal, and it was. And what Oliver is doing here is profoundly unjust, uh, because the question is not whether or not his his younger brother Orlando is 
provided for. He has a home, but he's not, he has no money. And the thing that Orlando is pushing back against the most is that he does not have the education of a gentleman. Mm. He's basically growing up as a farm laborer, even though his blood is noble. And that's his main complaint in scene one. Right, right. And that would have rung very loudly to Shakespeare's original audience. That rings a little bit less loud to us today. It's a little bit harder for us to understand. But that's, that's the loss of class and stature associated with... Um, this deprivation that Orlando is feeling from his brother is a, it's a really significant problem. It's a massive problem. It's It's not just that he doesn't get to go to Harvard. It's so much more than that. Right. Well, and we see it even in the form, which I was noticing this time that when the play opens, Orlando is speaking in prose, not in poetry. Mm. And usually that's reserved for the lower Lower classes. Right, right. Within the play, um, but within Shakespeare's plays. But no, he gives the hero of, which we don't know that necessarily yet, but the hero of our play here is speaking in prose Mm. while he's complaining about the fact that he does not have a gentleman's great observation that's a great observation we see the content and the form mingling together to communicate to the audience hey something's not right with this young man he there's and and it's not his fault heidi one of the other i'm going to kind of pivot us here um one of the other themes that shakespeare introduces in this first act that is going to kind of like grow and bear fruit in subsequent acts um, happens in the first conversation between Rosalind and Celia when they get together. They've just been talking about wrestling. Right. And Rosalind says, what shall be our sport then? And the conversation that follows is a conversation about fortune hmm. or even the wheel of fortune. Um, so it, it, fortune, I noticed reading the play, Fortune pops up, this concept of the wheel of fortune shows up repeatedly, it's sprinkled throughout the play. So I just wanted to, I wanted to touch on that very briefly. And I thought it might be nice for us to read Act 1, Scene 2, when Rosalind and Celia are, are having this little conversation. But the background is, um, there's a medieval concept that probably shows up most strongly late in the classical era or late in the ancient era in Boethius's book, Consolation of Philosophy, there's this notion that fortune is a wheel and the goddess Fortuna is spinning the wheel at random. And the people who are at the top of the wheel, who are benefiting, who have wealth, who have good health, who have good standing in society, they're at the top of the wheel, and then the goddess Fortuna comes along, she spins the wheel, and the person who's at the bottom of the wheel gets flipped to the top, and the one who's at the top flips to the bottom. Right. And, and there's a strong emphasis on the fact that Fortuna's actions are random. She does not do it to punish. She does not do it to reward. It's just the sun shines on some and the rain falls on others and there's no there's nothing but chance associated with this so um boethius late classical era it's like from the fall of the roman empire um boethius is a christian he has a great place in court and 
he is suddenly he's arrested he's basically tried and he's going to be killed and he in his book consolation of philosophy is having this conversation with lady philosophy in which he's trying to make sense of kind of just the happenstance of life the fact that fortune seems to have dealt him such a like brutal blow that he has not deserved it's kind of in a way it's the same kind of question that job is asking why does this why are these bad things happening to me i've tried to live a good life in fact i have lived a good life why have why have these things happened to me and so that concept the wheel of fortune shows up really strongly in this play because rosalind and celia in the scene that we're about to read they're doing great everything's going their way you know yeah their father rosalind's father has been exiled but still they're comfortable um they're cared for whereas orlando the wheel of fortune has spun against him he's about to go into exile and what is the cause there seems to be no cause he's a good guy and his brother oliver is a bad guy oliver's at the top of the wheel orlando's at the bottom of the wheel and it seems like fortuna has just spun randomly and that's the chance so um let's let's read act one scene two and i think heidi you should be rosalind because i think when we do if we do some other readings i think you should just expect to play rosalind and i will do i will play suya great to be a lady reading this play <laughs> rosalind's so delightful yes yeah, she is <laughs> let's read through um beginning with what shall be our sport then and let's conclude i'll conclude with fortune sitting this fool to cut off the argument got it all right what shall be our sport then let us sit and mock the good housewife fortune from her wheel that her gifts may henceforth be bestowed equally i would we could do so for her benefits are mightily misplaced and the bountiful blind woman doth most mistake in her gifts to women tis true for those that she makes fair she scarce makes honest and those she makes honest she makes fa- she makes very ill favoredly <laughs> nay now thou goest from fortune's office to nature's fortune reigns in gifts of the world not in the limits of nature no when nature hath made a fair creature may she not by fortune fall into the fire though nature hath given us wit to flout at fortune hath not fortune sent in this fool to cut off the argument indeed there is fortune too hard for nature when fortune makes nature's natural the cutter off of nature's wit Heidi, there's a lot going on. Yes, <laughs> a lot going on, and it's just like it's almost issued as a throwaway. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like I, I think pro- I, I was watching the movie of it as I read along, and the movie moves so swiftly through this little bit, and I thought, could anyone actually understand the density of what's happening here between these two characters? This little debate about the nature of fortune and the nature of nature. Do you, you want to try to make sense of it? The <laughs> you try to like slow it down and parse it out like good close readers? Right. So the, the conversation here is, uh, has to do with uh, if things are all by chance, kind of where is that chance coming from? Is uh-huh. it fortune meaning, is it luck? Right? Is it just some people get this, some people get that, and that's the way it is, and it's just random? Or is it 
nature? Is it um, embedded kind of within, say, inheritance or uh, heredity? Um, is it is it nature giving this, or is it chance or fortune? Mm-hmm. And or and how much are those two things related? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a this is going to become a very primary theme within the play. Yeah, um, and it is a philosophical conversation, as you're saying. Like this is metaphysical in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. The nature of being in ontology. Where do things? What is the source? Um, and um, but it is also lighthearted between these two, as we're going to learn. Very strong women. Like I, I've, these are two of, especially Rosalind mm-hmm. is almost universally beloved. A lot like Viola in Twelfth Night. Um, and she's going to, as we're going to see, provide the education to Orlando that he's missing. Yes. And um, that in the green world. Um, but this is our introduction to these two wonderful women. Um, and, and they're debating these things that scholars have debated through the ages. And, and if I were teaching this play, it's less important that you dig into what do they mean by nature? Yeah. What do they mean by fortune? Um, and, and instead kind of look at the meta narrative, which is these two women are like really smart and really wonderful. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and so I wouldn't worry too much about it with, in terms of the content of completely trying to understand word for word what they're trying to say here. Um, but it is important to know uh, or to think about, this is introducing this idea of how much does chance matter and how much does merit matter mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and how much does the mores of society matter in determining the outcome of any given situation mm-hmm. would you agree with that or yeah what, what i do, do i do i i agree i think that when the play is performed this scene is very fun and very playful and very dense but the play does not slow down and i don't know that the teacher should i mean we're slowing down because it's fun to kind of like pull at these words because mm-hmm. nature especially plays such a prominent role in Shakespeare's kind of like view of the universe and human interactions. But I think I would not, a, a teacher shouldn't feel like she's neglecting Shakespeare by not like doing a deep metaphysical dive on the nature of nature and the nature of fortune. Right. Yeah. It's, I think it's intended to be fun. I do want to echo what you said. I think Celia and Rosalind are, they're the heroes of this play. Mm-hmm. Orlando, we meet Orlando first and we might think of him as our main character because he's the one who's been done wrong and he's an act one, scene one. But he, or, or, Orlando is a very good man. He's not the brightest man. Mm-hmm. Rosalind and Celia are both exceptionally bright and they're also good. And right. I think they're the ones who kind of we should look to as the kind of twin north stars of this of this play. Right. And I think just to give our audience something to look forward to, aside from Jacquees's speech All the World's a Stage, uh the most famous and the most probably lovely scene uh is going to fall in act three, which is, we know it's going to happen. So it's not a spoiler alert. Rosalind and Orlando meet in the forest, but Rosalind has taken on 
a man's garb and she now looks like a man and she is going to encourage Orlando to kind of practice his wooing by practicing on her disguised as him. And that little back and forth in act three is just, it's delightful. I've actually, I've played that scene before. I've played Orlando in that scene. It's a great scene to play and it's a really fun scene to watch. Absolutely. That's, that's something to look forward to. Yes. Oh, I really love that. I didn't know that you had played Orlando. Yeah, I, I, I have not played Orlando. I just played that particular scene. I used mm-hmm. to act in um, Shakespeare showcases in which we would just take select scenes, like maybe a dozen to 20 of them, and we would perform them all in an afternoon. And so I did Orlando with my friend Michelle and... It was great. It was just great. Um, Heidi, other things that we should that that our listeners should look for in Act Two and uh, in subsequent acts for this play. Sure. So Act One gives us the main problems of the play. You know, when you're reading Shakespeare, really any very dense, uh, compacted story at the, especially in if it's as you as you have so eloquently stated many times, Tim, with plays, um, with drama, you're looking for what is the problem and what do these characters want? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and that's presented to us very succinctly through a couple of important scenes in Act One. I think that As You Like It is so brilliantly constructed because like almost all of Shakespeare's comedies, it's really complicated. Mm-hmm. Like if you're trying to sit down and explain the plot of a Shakespearean comedy, it's almost impossible. You have to see it performed because then you're saying, okay, so now she's dressed up as Orlando, but she's pretending right. to be Rosalind, but it really is Rosalind. And and then, you know, so it's it's so complex. And these these characters are related here and this is the niece of so-and-so who's also related over here, you know, so that they're, they're complicated plays. Yeah. And I think that as you like it, just structurally is so brilliant because this first act of a very complicated story gives us the problems of the play mm. and what these main characters in the high plot, which means the high born characters plot, what they want Right? Like these are characters that are they they want to fall in love, they want to be restored to their rightful place in society, and they want the justices the injustices of the world to be resolved. Um, and there's some very specific bad guys that are pointed out here in this first yeah, yeah. in this first act too. Um, so as we're looking into the next act, we know that Celia and Rosalind and Orlando and Adam, the servant, are going out into the forest. They are exiled or banished. They're gone. Now they now they can no longer, they no longer have a place in society, but they should. Injustice has been done against them and they are fleeing to the forest of Arden or the green world where things get more complicated and then resolve. And so we're looking for, as we head into act two, we're looking for more of that rising action. We're looking for more complication. We're going to look for a, a, a low plot uh, because Shakespeare always then has, there's, there's the doubling that we've talked about in other 
uh, podcast when we have that the high plot, which is the highborn characters and how are they, what is their, what are their problems? And then you also are going to have a mirroring or doubling within a low plot, meaning lower born characters, probably servants, um, are going to have similar problems to their highborn counterparts played out in a different subplot. And, and we haven't seen that yet. So we're looking for that in act two. So that would be the plot in The Tempest when Caliban meets the two servants who have also been shipwrecked, who are kind of walking around the island, drinking wine and, you know, making bawdy jokes. That would be the low plot of The Tempest, whereas Ferdinand um, and his brothers and his fathers, their interactions with Prospero would be the kind of high plot. So it's, yes. in that way, it's another similarity between The Tempest and As You Like It. Heidi, I want to say one thing um, for listeners to pay attention to going forward is the character of Jacques. Yes. So it's going to look on the page like Jacques, but the tradition is Jacques because it's kind of an affectation on a French pronunciation of Jacques. He's a peculiar character because it's kind of like, what is he doing here? Um, he, he seems really cynical. He is. And it seems like almost everybody else in the play has got an, a, they've got a goal. There, there's a love interest. There's a wrong that needs to be righted. But Jacques kind of stands on the sidelines and he pontificates. And if you're wondering what Jacques's role is in this play, it is to stand on the sidelines and to pontificate. That's, that's kind of what he does. And I just think the first time that I read this play or saw this play, I was confused by him. I thought, what's he doing here? You know? And it's interesting that he gets one of the most beautiful monologues. It's the monologue that we remember that we started this show with, and it's the monologue that we kind of remember this play by, All the World's the Stage. Um, but it's delivered not by a heroic character and not by a dastardly character, but by a character who is, um, he's just kind of a cynical bystander. He's not one of the fools. We've got a fool in this play who, like Shakespeare's other fools, is bright and incisive and um, capable of seeing things that other characters don't. Jacquees is not really that. Or, may, or maybe if he is that, he's, he's a cynical fool that is not really trying to save his master, as in Lear. He's just right. there um, to observe what he sees and to kind of make dusty remarks about um, the nature of the world. And so I would encourage people that if they're trying to get acquainted with Jacquees, just take it as um, as editorializing, as beautiful, slightly cynical editorializing. Right, and I I agree. I find these characters in Shakespeare's comedies to be just endlessly fascinating to me. Antonio in um, The Merchant of Venice. Um, there's, oh man, I just these these characters that don't end up with. They don't end up coupled. They're mm-hmm. outsider characters, mm-hmm. often in love with somebody who doesn't love them back, mm-hmm. um, or or not necessarily abandoned by their um, friends, but 
you know, I keep thinking, you know, Jacques is a great example of this. And then Antonio in, in The Merchant of Venice, he, he's an outsider character who does good and he's, he had, he's, he has a friend of the same sex who then later on ends up married and changes allegiance away from him to his new bride. And that happens kind of over and over again in these comedies in which there's these characters that, um, that kind of remind us, hey, even marriage doesn't solve everything. Mm-hmm. There's still outsiders. There's mm-hmm. still people that are exiled from your happiness. Yeah. Even after the play is resolved. Yeah. And I find that so interesting. I do too. I do too. Yeah. And yes. Love doesn't solve everything. Heterosexual love does not solve everything. And mm-hmm. that's a really big Jacquees is that character in this in this play. Yeah, he is. He is. And in some ways, he is the intellectual rival, not rivals as in competitors, but he is on the same intellectual level as Rosalind and Celia, where Celia and Rosalind have hopes and ideals and goals that they're fighting for. He's lost them. He's an outsider. He's, he's not going to be harmonized into kind of like the social world of this play. Right. And you're right. Shakespeare does not forget. It's one of the reasons that I love Shakespeare so much. He does not forget those characters. He doesn't forget about them. And he doesn't kind of like, I don't know, um, harmonize them into happiness. He kind of just leaves. They're often at the end of the play, they're just kind of left hanging. Right, right. He does that in a different way with Malvolio in Twelfth Night, which I... I just think that play, that might be what I think Twelfth Night is Shakespeare's greatest high comedy. But with Malvolio, not only is he not harmonized, but he's excessively punished beyond his crimes. Yeah, he is. And and that is one of the last things you see in the play. Mm. And so, and then with Jacques, you have this melancholy character that, maintains his melancholy throughout the entire play. So anyway, I, I do think that you pointing him out is really important. And in teaching this play, I do, I, I would recommend kind of what, what's going on with Jacques, how he is detached and then mirroring back a lot of the, the underlying contemplations of this play uh, while the other characters are just kind of rollicking around and enjoying it. Yeah. So just the, the nature of his speeches is, is always interesting to pay attention to, but his role within the play of that kind of like scapegoaty kind of outsider character who takes on the loneliness of those who are left out of romantic love, he, that, he's a recurring character in Shakespeare, and that's important. Heidi, I, I want to wrap up with this, um, and this is a little bit of a Tim McIntosh hobby horse, but um, the opening of this play, the opening of Merchant of Venice the opening of so many of the classics that we talk about on this show or allude to is a reference to a dominating emotion. So it's not an intellectual concept, but a dominating emotion. So for Orlando, his first sentence concludes with, and there begins my sadness. Mm. The beginning of Merchant of Venice, um, I I don't know that I can quote it, but it's something to the effect of, 
I know not wherefore I am so sad. The beginning of the Iliad is the beginning is the reference to the anger, the, the wrath of Achilles. Achilles. Right. Uh-huh. And, and I, I think as teachers, it's tempting to, because there's so much intellectual content to contemplate and to have fun with. Um, it's easy to lose the pulse of this play is Orlando's quest to, to not be sad. The Iliad is, it's Achilles' attempt to salve his anger by setting the scales of justice right. And I think um, I want to emphasize that because I, I, people have heard some of my Circe speeches, they know that I've, there's this kind of like, I have this kind of burden to emphasize that um, the academic world is so rightly in some ways um, in love with the rational aspect of human behavior and of problem solvings that it sometimes sort of casts out of the classroom the deep drive of our emotions of what it feels like for Orlando to be sad. And this is a, this is a play that yes, is about intellectual contemplations, but it's awesome. It's also, I think primarily about, um, it's an, it's an emotional drive that sets our play in motion. Mm -hmm. So I, I always feel like this need, maybe no one is asking me to do this. This is just like Tim's stuff, but I do feel this drive to kind of like remind people. Absolutely. This belongs in the classroom. I completely agree. And I think that the fact that you coupled your statement about emotion with our conversation about those scapegoated characters is significant because Shakespeare, I think, wants us not to forget that either yeah you know this is a comedy it's it would be very easy to just make it comedic uh-huh. but shakespeare doesn't <laughs> shakespeare doesn't let us get away with reducing even though he's got stock characters and these like elaborate plots that would never happen in real life and you know all these things there's still this sense that shakespeare is like i don't want you to forget that we're yeah. human that yeah. we're humans, that we're this massive contradiction, that we are driven by our emotions, that we're constantly looking for a remedy to our existential questions. Even the conversation between Celia and Rosalind is, um, it's between two girls that are, that are talking about their personal lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that is important. And we're not... <laughs> You know, we're not trying to say, make this comedy melancholy. It's not melancholy. But just like human life, it has melancholy elements to it. And in the midst of this rollicking good time that they're having in the forest, you know, overcoming their obstacles to love so they can find each other and end with a wedding as all Shakespearean comedies do, there's still this sense that these are human beings with real emotions at stake. Yeah, yeah. And the edges are still kind of ragged from time to time. The edges are ragged. Exactly. And what's the point of reading a story if we don't feel something? Like that's 
It's like, don't try to reduce it just to a contemplation of nature and fortune. Like if that is too complicated, don't even think about it. Just, just think about the human element. That's really what, I mean, that, that's what literature is about. It's about becoming more human. So I'm just echoing exactly what you just said. Thank you. So Heidi, um, we are going to, next up is act two in which we'll hear the famous Jacques speech. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different. This is for our listeners. We're going to dump all of these at the same time, which if you've found this podcast episode of act one, you've probably discovered that we're going to do all of these at the same time, rather than kind of like a time release as we get them done. So we're thinking of these podcasts as kind of teacher's aids for those who are trying to tackle some of Shakespeare's plays, either in the classroom or actually on stage. Um, so Heidi, do you have any closing thoughts? Oh, I feel like I said all my thoughts. I, I kind of feel like I said all my thoughts. Also. Yeah, what about you? No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm looking forward to act two. Uh, I do want to, I do want to remind everyone that they can join the conversation online on Facebook. We have a very active Facebook page, which is through the close reads Facebook page. Um, because I think a lot of the traffic from the plays, the thing, we just, it's all happening via the close reads Facebook page. And, um, you can also find us on Instagram and on Twitter at close reads pods and via email by writing to close reads podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget about our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Heidi. I'm going to sign us off. Great. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And tune in for Act 2 of As You Like It. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.